0: Well, hello, and welcome uh, to our event today here at the Cato Institute. Uh, Our apologies at the outset here. We were having a few technical difficulties, but we think we have those ironed out now, so we're going to go ahead and uh, get rolling here. Uh, Today, we are going to be discussing a new book by Professor Daniel Chard of Western Washington University entitled Nixon's War at Home the FBI, leftist guerrillas, and the origins of counterterrorism uh, from University of North Carolina Press. Joining us for that uh, is Dr. Beverly Gage, Professor of History and American Studies, and the Brady Johnson uh, Professor of Grand Strategy at Yale University, and the author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, A Story of America in Its First Age of Terror. And finally, we're joined by my good friend uh, from the Brennan Center, Faisal Patel, who is the co-director of the Brennan Center's Uh, Center for Justice, Brennan Center for Justice Liberty National Security Program, and she has authored multiple reports since 2011 uh, on a wide range of national security and civil liberties related issues, Uh, and she is a lawyer herself and extremely versed in national security law, so we are very, very grateful that she has joined us today as well. Just a few housekeeping items here uh, before we really get into the program in depth. Uh, You can submit your questions from Twitter, uh, Facebook, or YouTube, where this event is being live streamed. Uh, And if you wanna ask a question, just simply use the hashtag Century of Surveillance, um, and that will will get you into the queue there. We've got lots of additional resources uh, on these particular topics, having to do with uh, privacy, civil liberties, and surveillance, of course, on our website. Um, I want to just kind of begin with a little bit of, of scene setting here This particular book is about a period of history that is among the most turbulent uh, in that of our country's existence. Of course, that's the 1960s and 1970s. And this entire issue of terrorism, what constitutes terrorism, who engages in it, uh, the reasons for it, and so on and so forth, these are all issues essentially, you know, that Daniel tries to explore. And, uh, you know, Daniel, when I, when I found out uh, from our mutual friend, Chip Gibbons, over at Defending Dissent, that that you were working on this thing and it was actually going to be out this year, you know, the first question that popped into my mind was, you know, why this book? You know, why now? So, kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, what motivated you to do
1: this. Sure. Well, I want to thank you, Patrick, for inviting me here and for this forum with esteemed scholars in my field, um, Beverly Gage and Faiza Patel. And, you know, i um, who I both really respect, and it's really a gift to be able to have this forum of people who've read my book and can comment on it. And I'll, I'll talk, you know, I, well, I, maybe this will come up later, but definitely um, Beverly Gage's work. It, it, I mean, probably, she's probably one of the scholars who are, whose work I engage with the most um, in, this, in this book. But I will say that um, um, how did I come here so, to this topic? The I started off, um, I kind of an unconventional way. I didn't, I didn't come do this through a traditional kind of academic, um, path. I dropped, I, I went to college after high school, and, and I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut. I went to college at New Haven's finest university, Southern Connecticut State University. So, um, had kind of make a little joke, but um, yeah, I went to Southern and I was involved in like a lot of political activism, animal rights movement, environmental movement, the movement of free Mumia Abu Jamal, which I was introduced to from people in New Haven, and um, I dropped out of college after the B- Battle of Seattle in 1999, and um, which was when um, protesters shut down the World Trade Organization meeting and. I mean, Fenton drove to the West Coast. We were interested in being, I I wanted to be part of that and part of making kind of social change. And um, I late, you know, over during that time, in early 2000s, you know, I started, I was involved in the anarchist wing of the global justice movement and um, political prisoner support. And I even met and visited some political prisoners, people who had been incarcerated as a result of some of these guerrilla activities. I visited some of them in prison. and met some who had come out of prison. So it was later in 2006, I decided to go back to school at um, University of Southern Maine in Portland. And I decided to finish my history degree. And I was really interested I knew I wanted, I, for a senior, th- for a thesis, I started doing research on a, gr- uh, a prisoner's rights group that was active in Maine in the 1970s, partly modeled after the Black Panthers, it was mostly white working class people. And some of them ended up going underground and being part of another leftist guerrilla group that was active in the Northeast in the late 70s and early 80s. So I, I, I studied that prisoner's rights group in Maine as a thesis, but I was, when I went to graduate school at University of Massachusetts, I knew I wanted to research this stuff, um, and I was also coming out of being part of these movements and thinking about strategies and tactics for social change. And like, one of the questions I that was really I was asking myself was about these leftist guerrilla groups: was how did how did they impact or influence American politics beyond the radical left? Um, mm-hmm. And I started looking for answers to that question in FBI documents. I was, you know, some of the first joint terrorism task forces that are later expanded in the post nine eleven era are actually formed New York, Chicago, and Boston in the late seventies and early eighties to go after domestic leftist guerrilla groups, including the one I mentioned for the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force. But as I was trying to back up, getting to the early an earlier part of this, and I was looking through um, FBI surveillance documents and counterintelligence documents targeting the students for a democratic society and the Weatherman man faction that comes out of that um in 1969 and seeing the word terrorism being used in these documents and that's when i uh, and then it, it was around that time that i also encountered beverly gage's article um in a journal of pol- um, political history on watergate and bureaucratic conflict and so I realized that the, this some of this leftist violence was really, one, influencing something that would starting to become known as counterterrorism, and um, also wrapped up in this bureaucratic conflict that's happening within the FBI and between J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and um, the Nixon White House that leads to the Watergate scandal. So that's... That's how I. That's how I came to this topic. Put a
0: privacy act uh, request in on yourself to see whether you have a file. Because with all these folks that you were hanging out with, I'm just kind of suspicious that I, that you you might have become an an object of interest to the bureau itself. Have you ever done that?
1: You know, my friend Ryan Shapiro, who um, started a organization. He he did his doctorate at MIT um, and he has he started a group called uh, um oh what's it called some for the people um oh i'm forgetting the name of it It, but he it's it's he it's something for the people documents for the people or something like that but he he is it's a does freedom of information privacy act requests and tries to facilitate a lot of bringing a lot of the documents to the media and i i know that Me and some other people who were involved in the animal rights activists back in the day, animal rights and anarchist movement back in the day. He's done a bunch of FOIA requests, but that's so recent, and they, you know, these these requests are stalled by the by the FBI, you know, so regularly. Who knows? Who knows if if there's anything, and if what they'll turn up. But I think there's an ongoing process where he's trying to. Beverly
0: Daniel has just used. Beverly, has, Beverly Daniel has just used that, that magic word anarchist. Um, right. And that is something that, uh, that you have, obviously, a lot of experience with, kind of looking at this early 20th century era. Um, and I, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, your observations essentially uh, about, about Daniel's work here in connection, you know, with your own previous work, do you think he he's made a decent case here that it really did become much more of a thing, essentially from the 60s, essentially onward? Uh, or are there aspects of what happened in the era that that you have written about that you think are, are definitely relevant uh, you know, to this whole terrorism discussion kind of generally?
2: Right, well, uh, thanks for having me here. Congratulations to Daniel on a terrific book. Um, To give a quick answer to your question, I would say both. Um, And there are really two ways that I intersect with Daniel's work. So one is um, the book that you mentioned, The Day Wall Street Exploded, which was a study of uh, the rise of anarchist terrorism in particular, but in the context of, broader labor struggles and labor violence in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the federal responses to that. Um, And then I'm also finishing a biography of J. Edgar Hoover that I've been working on for about a decade. So I've been deep in the 60s and 70s as well. I've seen uh, some, though not all, of the materials that uh, that Daniel has looked at in that period. Um, On the anarchism question, I think it is uh, an interesting place to think about what is new in the 60s and 70s, because I think Daniel's absolutely right that there's something new there. I think what is not new in that moment is, first of all, uh, a pretty broad conversation among leftists about the utility of violence and particularly kind of spectacular violence uh, such as terrorism as a possible revolutionary tactic right that has a long history and in many ways the anarchists of the late 19th century were sort of the first real theorists of that they had dynamite for the first time they were really thinking in terms of revolution and Uh, And so a lot of the ideas that terrorist groups since that moment have used in one way or another look quite similar. Um, And I think in the late 19th and early 20th century, you also have a lot of policing and federal, as well as local and state responses to that, private responses as well. A sense that this is of concern, et cetera, et cetera, that really resonate with what comes later. And one of the things that interested me about studying Hoover is that he is one of those points of continuity between those periods. He lived for so long, he stayed in office for so long, that he's there uh, in 1919 and 1920 for this dramatic wave of anarchist bombings, and he's still there as Daniel's book shows in the 60s and 70s uh, when a lot of this uh, comes back around in some way or another, and in fact Hoover himself is constantly describing these 60s and 70s movements as anarchistic. Uh, He is using this earlier period as his kind of imagined point of reference. So I think there are a lot of continuities and what comes along in the 60s and 70s Um, should be seen in that context. That said, I do think Daniel's right in the sense that what happens in the 60s and 70s um, is that while terrorism was a word earlier, um, it was in this kind of mix, the forms of violence look very similar, it becomes a Category in its own right to be combated in a different way in the 60s and 70s, and then that becomes really obviously accelerated in the war on terror. Um, The earlier war was a war on anarchism. Um, People used the word terrorism, and there was a lot of terrorist violence, but it was about particular political contexts. Whereas what happens in this more recent era in the last half century is that the tactic itself has been sort of extracted out uh, of its political context and has become the object of all of this policing. And in fact, um, as Daniel suggests, and as as everyone here has has written about, um, inspires a massive security apparatus with that as its central logic, as opposed to uh, other ways of thinking about what that violence is about.
0: We use this word terrorism, but when did it actually get defined in federal law? I mean, is it, I mean, do we have like a real, a real legal framework essentially for categorizing essentially political violence?
1: Well, before I answer, I, the short answer to that is that there's not, there's no, there's all of the different intelligence agencies and different agencies in, of the state, the U.S. government, have different definitions of terrorism. There's no, there's not even a, a, a uniform agreement about that. And there are, there are different like terrorism enhancement laws for prosecuting people that developed later in the '80s and especially after 9/11. But I'm wondering if I could take a moment to kind of explain some of the main arguments of the book, um, and so that and and. You know, and then kind of take it from there,
0: so that the audience can, yeah, yeah,
1: no, I but but, be grounded in that as a basis for the discussion.
0: Yeah, but I, I just, I think really quickly, if I can turn to FISA, I, I think, sure, for me at least, what I think is important is is for the audience to have a sense of whether or not we've actually got anything in the statute right now, or in in law, essentially that kind of defines this stuff. I mean, so can you, Afaiza, can you educate us quickly?
3: Sure, so basically, um, the US code, federal law, contains a statutory definition of domestic terrorism and a statutory definition of international terrorism. So in essence, it says, you know, these are actions um, that are violations of criminal law taken to coerce the government uh, to to change its position or to take certain actions. Um, And then, you know, it sort of distinguishes between domestic terrorism as stuff that mainly takes place on the territory of the United States versus international terrorism, which is meant to be really focused on other countries, although that definition has been used pretty expansively, uh, particularly since 9-11. And then when you look at the legal landscape, these are just definitions, right? These are not actual crimes of terrorism. And then what the federal code does is that it identifies various crimes as being terrorism crimes. And so these are crimes that are sort of specifically associated with political violence, such as hijackings, for example, uh, but also um, situations where the federal government has a particular interest. So. Um, Uh, you know, assassinations of of federal officials, for example. And then you have a a sort of a third category, which is the most expansive category of terrorism crime, which is called material support for terrorism. And basically that has sort of two elements, one which is used um, in both, both the material support elements are used primarily for what we call international terrorism in the U.S., but uh, one of them actually requires you to commit a criminal act uh, that's sort of supporting um, a, a, an act of terrorism. But the second part, which is the most frequently used, requires mainly uh, requires just an intent to support an organization that is designated as a foreign terrorist organization. This is probably the most controversial part of the terrorism legal landscape. Because it allows the federal government to prosecute individuals who have done a very minimal amount of activity to support a foreign terrorist group uh, and subject them to very long prison terms, uh, up to 20 years in prison per count.
0: And am I correct that the, the statutory framework that you described was not in existence at the time of the events that Daniel describes in his book?
3: So I'm trying to think about when the the terrorism definitions actually came into the U.S. Code, and I don't know the answer to that. Certainly, the international terrorism, in particular the material support provisions, right? Those were interestingly introduced uh, during Bill Clinton's administration, and they were um, a response to the uh, to a domestic a, a major domestic terrorism incident. So it's kind of an interesting twist where the so concern about domestic terrorism actually resulted in a provision that's primarily used for international terrorism.
0: So, Daniel, back to you. Um, with respect to the book, I, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think those original definitions um, didn't actually get into the statute until about 1992, if, if I recall correctly, if I'm reading the code correctly. This is a non-lawyer you know, potentially winging it here, looking at the U.S. code, but I, I think, but it, but certainly the material support provisions, all the rest of that, that's largely a post-9/11 uh, phenomenon. So a lot of this stuff, Daniel, you know, clearly post dates essentially, um, you know what what you talk about there, and it seems to me that the fact that there there really wasn't essentially. Any kind of hard and fast definition is one of the things that kind of worked to the advantage of the Nixon administration, right? I mean, they could they could basically decide, you know, what they were going to declare to be, you know, a, a threat to the to state security, et cetera, et cetera, and, and categorize people as terrorists.
1: Yeah. Well, th- thanks. I mean, I th- I I think I, the best way to answer that is kind of giving the, uh, an overview of, of the book's core arguments. You know, and yeah, um, I think I think that I really appreciate what my colleagues um, have said here in terms of like of thinking about antecedents um, and past examples of conflicts with insurgent violence, anarchist violence. Um, we can talk about the Klan as well. And then also some of the post nine eleven or post 1970s de- legal definitions of terrorism. Um, you know, I start, I started off with a, the, my introduction off with with an the, the, an epigraph, which is a quote from um, an, or an oral history that had been conducted with an FBI agent, um, William Dyson, who later went on, who was one of the first FBI agents to investigate the weather underground and later other um, guerrilla groups or terror groups considered to be terrorists. And he re- went on to write one of the um top textbooks used to train um law enforcement intelligence officers in counterterrorism and he says in this in this um in this oral history that was conducted with this by the society the society of formal former special agents of the FBI. He said, these people are called what? These people who are doing these bombings on campuses, these anti-Vietnam War people, people that are trying to overthrow our government and get rid of the capitalist system. They're called, well, militants, revolutionaries, radicals, commies, pinkos, weirdos, beatniks. I mean, there's all sorts of terms. And he says, in the early 1970s, the word terrorism creeps into our vocabulary. All of a sudden, these people are all sort of lumped into the word terrorism. And I go on to explain in, the, in that introduction that, um, and I'm drawing partly here from the work of Lisa Stampnitsky, whose book Disciplining Terror is a, you know, a study of knowledge and power and discourse and how this term terror takes on a really important meaning, particularly after 1972. But um, I go on to say, like, this is a period in um, when, in the Nixon era, when in response to, Hundreds of bombings being carried out by leftist guerrillas who are responding to state violence, the war in Vietnam, to racist policing and police violence in communities of color, and against protesters. There's some who, for reasons I can explain later, who who take up guerrilla warfare, kind of import it from Latin America and and decolonial struggles into the U.S. as a strategy for change, for a socialist revolution. Um, in response to that there's several things that happen between in this conflict between leftist guerrillas who are you know a minority of the left but have a big impact and the state so one is that um you have the emergence of something called counterterrorism which is preemptive policing designed to find people considered terrorists in advance and destroy them in advance even before they carry out their violence and there's a set of Larger politics around that. But part of a big part of that advanced detection of terrorists is a mass surveillance. So um, one of the big arguments here is that this is a period where we see a shift in national security priorities away from anti-communism. That was defined, you know, the growth of the national security state during the second Red Scare after World War II, towards anti-terrorism and framing that specific framing allows um political leaders and intelligence and law enforcement leaders to um try to bring back illegal surveillance tactics that had been used against communists and actually had been um been um that J Edgar Hoover had stopped using had put a ban on internally within the FBI including break-ins um warrantless wiretapping mail surveillance um, revive them in the name of f- fighting terrorism. Um, but now let me, also, let me
0: just, let me, let okay. me just jump in real quick though. With, with respect to warrantless wiretapping, there was, there was no actual, uh, cessation of that with respect to foreign intelligence threats during that period, because, so I think we do need to make a, a distinction here in terms of, um, You know, how how wiretapping had been employed essentially since May of 1940, when when uh, President Roosevelt authorized then Attorney General Robert Jackson, uh, despite the Nardone decision of the Supreme Court, uh, explicitly stating that the Communications Act prohibited wiretapping, uh, telling Jackson that he was okay to go ahead and, and wiretap for, quote, national security purposes. The catch was that that evidence could never be used in court. So it was always about essentially monitoring what let's say Soviet agents were up to, and then trying to find some other ways, some other evidence, if you will, that they could get at it. But the wiretapping that you're referring to was very much focused on, on domestic entities. Correct. That's
1: yeah, correct. So there, there, there is some evidence of warrantless in this mid sixties period where it had been rained back, you know, targeting, um gr- targeting may, pro- potentially the communist party and maybe even a little bit um of S- SNCC, student nonviolent uh, under agents under um the auspices of being you know trying to find espionage and you know i can come back to that but yeah. there's the he, warrantless wiretapping was reined in um during this period partly because um they you know ran, um attorney general ramsey clark had had put some pressure on hoover to do that yeah so but to to, to kind of lay out the argument a bit more okay there's this shift from um so a reviving of illegal surveillance tactics yes domestically against american citizens um but also the terrorism framework is used um and it's it's not a conspiracy but in partly an improvisational way to develop new policing tactics um that are new to this period the fbi's first use of undercover agents um domestic interagency task forces framed as fighting terrorism contingency plan for hostage situations we also get the 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 federal government's first institutions explicitly dedicated to fighting terrorism the houston plan is short-lived and we can talk about that more and it ends because of a bureaucratic struggle between Hoover and Nixon, and is part of a big flare-up leading to in the bureaucratic conflict that, um, as Beverly Gage has noted and I built upon, leads to Watergate. Um, um, reviving of mass of mass surveillance targeting broad parts of the left and also racialized suspect communities. I have a chapter called "Arab Scare," talking about after the 1972 attacks at the Munich Olympics, how the FBI turns to. Um, you know, really harasses Arabs and in, in the U.S. and Arab Americans, and kind of creates a template for some of the mass surveillance of of, of Muslims in the in the you know 1990s and post 9/11 era. But another thing is that that this ter- that this counterterrorism existed as part of a larger political economy and political shift in American politics. Some in, in the field of Studying mass incarceration or carceral state studies of is retur- referred to as a punitive term in American politics, where there is a, um, a shift in federal spending priorities away from the social democracy of the New Deal and the Great Society towards mass incarceration, right? And the, the development of counterterrorism is part of Nixon's law and order politics that is part of that, that broader shift in American society um, as well. Another thing is that the stated objectives of a lot of these nascent counterterrorism operations, um, are you know, the, the FBI is limited in its effectiveness in, in achieving its own goals, and there's all kinds of unintended consequences. And one of those, that to bring each to the kind of the second main argument of the book, the first one being about the origins of counterterrorism, is that um, is it, is it contributes to this institutional conflict. And there's several flashpoints Um, of this institutional conflict that kind of sets um, Nixon on the road to Watergate. Um, The Houston plan is one of them, which comes after the Weather Underground accidentally um, kills three of its own members. They kill themselves in a bomb explosion in Greenwich Village townhouse. Another is um, a young black militant, Jonathan Jackson, who carries out an armed raid on a courthouse in August 1970 in California. and um, the black liberation army starting a campaign of police assassinations in may 1971 and then the munich attacks and, that were mentioned earlier so and,
0: and then so in, um, in essence just little, if yeah. if, I, if i if i follow if i follow the argument essentially here you you get the shift from johnson to nixon and nixon comes in essentially with this uh, war on crime for all intents and purposes right i mean this this is a major theme of the 1968 campaign all the campus disorders, all the rest of that. This this is essentially the the milieu that is happening in America at that particular time, and this is what gets Nixon, you know, going in that whole, you know, tough on crime, law and order kind of um, mindset. And if I if I interpret your work correctly, it is the the issue of Hoover facing pressure from Nixon and others around him to take measures that Hoover and maybe some of his lieutenants were very reluctant to because there was more congressional interest now in, in what the bureau had been up to, right? And so this, if I understand correctly, is where we begin to kind of get the rub, where, where Nixon begins to look for essentially other means of achieving his ends, of, of going after some of his opponents because Hoover is not willing to necessarily go there. Do, am I am I reading that correctly, or am I misreading that?
1: Yeah. So, well, good. Yeah, so the you know the war on crime really starts under under um, Lyndon Johnson, and you know the with the passage of the Safe Streets Act. Um, there's two versions of it. I think the first is 1966 and 1968, and that creates a basis of you know federal funding through block grants to different police departments. But you know. Um, you know, Elizabeth Hinton has written about this in in, in her book, and so of others, but, you know, a, one person behind the scenes really pressing for more funds to go to the FBI, you know, when that's passed under the Johnson administration's Jared Gahur, but the um, Nixon, though, of course, runs on law and order politics, you know, which in some ways is a code word for, you know, a dog whistle for racial white voters racial concerns, but also concerns about about um crime but yeah as soon as nixon comes into office he goes to 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 hoover and asks for um intelligence to show that all that the different campus disorders or urban uprisings or or riots are being directed by some sort of foreign foreign entity cuba or um, and hoover actually says there's no there's no intelligence to show this and um and and the nixon nixon officials don't like that and um, and uh, that is kind of, some of where some of this tension between Nixon and Hoover begins. They have a share a lot of the same ideology, you know. Um, they, Hoover and Nixon had been friends and worked together during the early cold war where Nixon kind of started off. But um, the Nixon, one of the things and this is again, I'm drawing from Gage um, Beverly's work here. One of the things Nixon's really, I'm, I'm sorry, that Hoover's really concerned about as Nixon comes into office and, and during this period of more scrutiny of the FBI is his aut- the, the power of the FBI as that he's built as an autonomous police agency. And part of what keeps that image and that uh, what keeps that autonomy and that power is this image of the FBI as the G-men who are defending defending um, America from national security and crime. And he's concerned about leaks of classified uh, documents showing that they're, he's engaged in illegal activities. So he's, he's cautious about that. And that's yeah. where some of this tension begins as pe- as they start Nixon and Hoover and even people in the FBI start to argue about how do we deal with these clandestine leftist guerrillas? People have gone underground, committed to carrying out revolutionary bombings. When we can't find them, and um, who under whose authority and and who's going to sign off um, on authorizing kind of illegal surveillance tactics to preempt this right. type of activity so, so.
0: I I want to I want to turn back to uh, to Beverly quickly because in in the earlier age that you have written about um, leading up to that that terrible incident on Wall Street um, in 1920 there really was no comparable figure and correct me if I'm off base here, but there really was no comparable figure at that point in time to what Hoover would become. Am, am I correct in that in that assessment?
2: That's correct. Yeah, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, policing in any area, much less in uh, in this sort of area, was very divided. So some of it was going on in local police departments, but they weren't very sophisticated, they weren't very well organized, they weren't very professional. Uh, The federal government did not a whole lot, really until the First World War. And then in those years of 1919 and 1920, you see a big expansion of federal surveillance, but it's all new. Um, A lot of it is pretty (laughs) ham-handed, right? And again, there's a a grappling, and you get a big expansion of the security establishment In that moment, and this is the moment that Hoover gets his start as a very young man, Um, but it doesn't look anything like uh, the sort of sophisticated, permanent uh, security state that you have later on. And the third element, early in the 20th century, that would have been probably most aggressively engaged in some big uh, counterterrorism investigation if it required national and international scope uh, would have been private agencies. So one of the reasons that you get uh, organizations like the Pinkertons or the William J. Burns Agency, uh, these big, big Uh, private security agencies is not only to do strike breaking and the sorts of things that they're quite famous for, but was also because they built these national and international sort of detective apparatuses to solve large-scale crimes. So, but you had a very diffuse both security establishment to the degree that it existed at all and policing in that period. Fast forward to the 60s and 70s, you know, and Hoover himself has really become Uh, the architect, certainly in terms of domestic surveillance, in terms of, quote unquote, professionalizing law enforcement. um, He becomes FBI director in 1924, and he dies in that office in 1972. (laughs) So he just uh, is there for this whole story of the creation of the American security state. Um, And the phrase national security has come up um, and uh, is obviously still uh, an important phrase but I think one thing that's interesting for Hoover is that he takes you mentioned Franklin Roosevelt in 1940 saying well I'm sure the Supreme Court didn't really mean it when they said no wiretapping but for national security we can go ahead and do it and one of the things that happens is that national security becomes this incredibly capacious term, right, so that Hoover, even when he's going after domestic groups, um, is often describing this as, in fact, a matter of national security, sometimes because, as with the Communist Party, uh, they are understood to have international ties, to be working with the Soviet Union, et cetera, and other times national security uh, becomes defined as kind of keeping order, preventing violence. So even groups that are purely domestic, uh, such as the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which is an important group that the FBI is running um, intelligence and counterintelligence operations against in the 60s during this same period, or groups on the left, um, they are often framed in a kind of national security intelligence story um, because that term has become so broad, um, and Hoover deploys it in so many different ways.
0: And and you know, FISA Beverly has touched on this issue from from the early from the early 20th century, of of kind of the privatized aspects uh, of national security. And it seems to me, in many respects, we've kind of come full circle uh, when we talk about things like Palantir and 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 some of the others. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know the work that you all have basically been doing at the Brennan Center, of course, elsewhere in the community, the parallels that, that you see there, can you speak to that to, to a degree?
3: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, reading the book was sort of a, a giant deja vu because so much of, of, of what um, what you described, uh, Daniel, is sort of repeated in different forms. Um, and one thing, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, when you were talking, Beverly, about thinkogens and stuff, One of the things we've seen, particularly in the last decade, but really for a long time before that as well, is the ways in which the federal government and state and local police as well, rely on the accumulation of information and the analysis of information by private companies. So Pat mentioned Palantir, which is obviously one of the best known of them, but there are so many of these uh, companies that are aggregating data and then selling it or sharing it with the federal government and as we all know you know you have with with huge data sets you can actually develop very detailed information about individual americans and this information is now sort of combined with information that the government collects um, and this creates obviously a, a huge and very uh, unregulated uh, surveillance space right so this is you know, while we have rules, which, which are weak and oversight, which is weak, uh, relating to what uh, federal law enforcement and intel agencies can do and to, to some lesser extent, what state and local can do. This is an entirely basically unregulated area in which uh, huge amounts of information and surveillance capacities are built. You know, the other thing I, I, I was thinking about it as we were talking about the book and know which is you know, when we talk about the emergence of terrorism as a term, um, one of the things that strikes me is, you know, how much it was linked to the PLO. Um, And certainly when you look at, you know, the sort of trajectory of the use of the word terrorism and the concept of terrorism and terrorism laws in these sort of subsequent 50 years or so, it really, I think, hints at the racialized aspect of the term, Uh, and what that means, and and sort of related to that, one of the things that I thought was really striking about the book was the fact that, you know, this idea that um, Nixon really sort of focused on one type of violence, but really ignored other types of violence, state violence in particular, um, and the violence from police departments, Um, that to me has like a very Uh, has an analog, right, in the last 20 years, which is where I focus. Uh, So certainly, you know, you have, you know, lots of discussion, you know, in the press and in policy circles about, you know, the violence of of U.S. um, military interventions overseas. But if you were ever talking about terrorism with officials in the administration, there's no discussion of that, right? You simply cannot actually go back to talking about terrorism as political violence, because then that suggests that there is a solution that is based on politics and the legitimacy of having, there's no acknowledgement of the legitimacy of having a discussion about the political um, underpinnings of, of some kind, of certain kinds of violence. And I think that too, to some extent, has an extremely racialized component.
0: With respect to SDS and and, with respect to SDS and BLA, you know, these are the entities that you spend so much of your time talking about here. These uh, splinter factions essentially of, on the one hand, Students for a Democratic Society, and on the other hand, the Black Panthers, these splinter organizations had given up on conventional political solutions. And they engage in these activities. And, and you talk about, essentially, the uh, almost the, the, the physics aspect of this, you know, where there is an action, there will be an equal and opposite reaction. But in the case of, of the FBI, it, it, was, it was well beyond a, a, an equal reaction, right? I mean, they go after everybody's families and all the rest of this kind of thing. I mean, there's almost nobody, uh, essentially, certainly on the SDS side, that they didn't try to basically go after in order to get to that that really tiny number of actual militants and the, the effort that was expended and as you indicated basically for naught was astounding.
1: Yeah no thanks and thanks for both of those comments and i i want to talk about the politics of counterterrorism that emerged during this period and how they are wrapped up in in racism racial inequality economic inequality u.s imperialism you know this is the the war in vietnam took the lives of over three million people in you know in southeast asia or vietnam alone and then more in laos and cambodia and the the these these movements and the, the turn to guerrilla warfare is an attempt to stop that kind of state violence right and this other police violence the te- the terrorism label as it's being developed is really used for this specific kind of violence and and it's used retroactively you know to refer to the clan and there's conversations that start to have in the post 1970s or post 9 11 era about oh how do we stabilize this definition of terrorism but like that whole discussion is, comes it comes after comes later. Like we're, we can go back to like periodization and definition and and whether and appropriateness of that use of terrorism prior to the 1970s. To historically, we can come back to that. But that whole discussion doesn't exist until after the 1970s. But I, um, I, I want to start by responding to to what Faiza said, and then kind of also adding in a response to to your comment, Patrick. But in terms of the politics behind this, um, well actually, let me lay out some of the racial aspects first. First of all, in response to some of the urban uprisings in 1967, one of the things that Hoover institutes is a ghetto informant program, which is an effort to try to get informants in every urban black community in the country in order to predict when a riot or uprising civil disorder is gonna happen in advance. And it was so ineffective be, um, there was this pressure on field agents to develop informants. They created paper informants. They'd say this janitor in Detroit, you know, is, um, is giving me information and, and they just make stuff up. That was turning, that was turning, a ra- creating racialized suspect communities. That's li- at the same time though, there is after Nixon comes up into office, you know, there's, a, there's there's a move away from the kind of social democracy and government federal response to addressing those issues, underlying issues of inequality that were promoted in the Kerner Commission report, which was a a report that said, we need a government that and a society that that makes space for one people and make it gets rid of poverty and ends racism in law enforcement, right? Like that the the politics of law and order was a shift away from that and really ignoring that report so instead there's a there's a there's a way in which this, this is a, like just um, conf, um conflict management or damage control in, in and you rely on policing to try to deal with the violence that comes out of this inequality or that's coming in response to the state violence now hoover had mostly ignored the Klan during his career and it's really in 1964 when after the three civil rights um, workers are killed and murdered by the Klan with collusion of southern police in, in Mississippi that Johnson puts pressure on Hoover to go after the Klan and he and he does and the Klan is disrupted and as a national organization by the late 60s so the in terms of a national insurgency crossing state lines during this period, leftist guerrillas are the main focus, but it's, they are the ones who are lab- labeled as terrorists. And it's later expanded to looking at violence coming out of the Middle East. But look, in terms of the politics, it's important. To, one of the fi- one of the figures I talk about here is Strom Thurmond. Okay, Strom Thurmond is best known for being a segregationist, anti-communist, and he's one of the first Southern Democrats to switch parties to the Republican party and try to shift white Southern votes and other white voters into the Republican base using law and order politics. You know, during the 70s, you know, after Watergate, he's the head of this, the, um, the Senate's internal security subcommittee having these small meetings where he's bringing in these anti-communist intellectuals, some of them who are just come out of right wing think tanks. And he is um, trying to, talk about the FALN, the Puerto Rican independence guerrilla group that comes later in the 70s and Weather Underground, Symbionese Liberation Army and framing them as this terrorist threat, right? And, you know, it's that, that, those forums are mostly dismissed as these relics of, of McCarthyism and the Cold War. But, and after Hoover's worst nightmare comes true, partly because of The conflict over how to respond to these guerrilla bombings and and, and peace activists breaking into the FBI office in Media Pennsylvania in 1971 after Hoover has claimed that a bunch of peace activists are going to engage in a terrorist activities in Washington, D.C. Right, and we start to have the, the, the documents coming to the public and creating an uproar. People in the water after that area era and in the Watergate era are really, Americans are more concerned about government overreach and shocked by that than they are about kind of the handful of guerrillas that are carrying out bombings that mostly are not lethal, but some of them certainly are. But it's really after Reagan comes into office in 1980 with the Reagan revolution, that you start to have that's you know strom Thurmond then takes over the head of the senate judiciary committee and a new terrorism subcommittee is formed that's basically putting a new label on the internal security subcommittee and they're 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 some they're partly responsible for drafting the new language that that um that rolls back the attorney general guidelines for domestic security operations that had been put in place by Edward Levy after Watergate, the attorney general under the Ford administration. The new Smith guidelines are put into place and partly drafted by that committee. So it's always been, and meanwhile, Reagan is exporting terrorism around the world, right? The Contras in Nicaragua, the, funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets, while at the same time, after coming out of the Iran- hostage crisis saying that he's going to fight terrorism. So there's, oh, it's, this has been, counterterrorism has always been highly political.
0: Faisa, it looked like you had something you wanted to jump in with there.
3: Um, no, I was
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that, I could jump, jump in on, on,
2: can I jump in on, on two things? Uh, Please. One is um, this debate over the word terrorism. Um, and I think, as I was saying in my opening remarks, I think it is important to note that terrorism, as a word, as a concept with a very narrow meaning, right? Anarchists a century earlier described what they were doing as terrorism, as terroristic. Uh, And there were also uses of the word terrorism that were much broader. People would describe, say, labor protests as terror uh, and as terrorism. So um, I think the thing that happens in the 70s and Daniel's right, and that's what's great about this book, is that you get this official debate beginning, right, among academics and lawyers and government officials Seeking to kind of codify this, wrestle it to the ground, make it something sort of distinctive and and in some ways separated from its political context, as others were saying. Um, And one of the other pieces that I think is really useful about um, Daniel's book um, is that, in fact, he reminds us just how much violence there really was during this concentrated period of time, which I think many Americans tend to think back to the late 60s and early 70s as a period of kind of mass protest uh, but the depth of actually the violence that was being committed, right? Murders of policemen, hundreds of bombings going off, right? Fire bombings of ROTC centers. All of this sort of stuff. I think it is important when we think about. Uh, debates about violence today say uh, what's happened over the last year or two, debates over what's ha- what happened in Portland, actually the scale of violence involved in kind of protest activity in the, in the late 60s and early 70s um, is really entirely different from almost anything we've seen in a kind of highly politicized domestic way um, at the moment, at least anything that, that we've seen. Uh, from the left in recent years. And so while this book is about a lot of these continuities, um, I think one of the great things about it is it also highlights um, some of the real differences and people who are worried that, you know, this country has never been more divided in its history than it is today in 2021. Actually, things were pretty divided, right? And people returning to actual guerrilla warfare uh, in the late 60s and 70s because they so despaired of the American political system operating. So uh, I think there are uh, kind of important historical reminders on that end of things as well.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I have to do a plus one for that, because it, it really is so striking, right, that um, when you sort of compare the sort of scale of violence that we've had in the 20 years since 9-11, and we do spend so much time uh, talking about terrorism and so much time talking about, you know, the state response to terrorism, and you compare it to the 1970s, it, it really does feel like a drop in the bucket. You know, one thing, one other thing that I thought was really interesting about the book, which made me think sort of about our current situation, is sort of this shift from, you know, the idea of a communist threat that was really um, sort of inspired or instigated from from overseas and sort of the connections to the Soviet Union and, and Cuba to to sort of the leftist threat as envisioned as a purely domestic and I'm sort, of really, sort of thinking about, you know, how in the post 9-11 era, we really focused, the government is really focused on sort of the threat from groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and now everyone's talking about domestic terrorism. We see sort of like almost a similar shift, right? Um, although maybe not in the government response in quite the same way. So I thought that was a really striking analogy.
0: Well, and I think we also have this, this problem essentially – um, with what I think some folks refer to as availability bias, right? Mm-hmm. You wind up having an awful lot of media coverage, you know, essentially trying to convince people that you know there is a uh, an Islamist terrorist behind you know every tree or whatever, and, and and to me it just harkens back in many respects to the entire McCarthy era and and essentially what FISA was talking about with respect to to that Cold War mentality um, that is not you know, in any way, you know, to diminish, you know, actual events, you know, when they do happen. But I think one of the things that I've always been concerned about with, with this whole issue of, uh, of terrorism and, and the discussion surrounding it, is that it tends to, you know, make us numb to a lot of other forms of violence, you know, that, that, that just tend to add up. You know, I've, I've been in Washington now for uh, almost 34 years. And when I arrived here in 1988, Washington was literally the murder capital of the United States, you know, down in, down in Southeast, um, especially, I mean, over 500, almost 600, I think in 1988 alone, who lost their lives in the city. And the number of people who wind up, you know, getting killed, you know, here and there, so to speak, those become real numbers, but they, they never get, you know, the kind of traction as a general rule from a media standpoint, you know, that a major terrorism or what is billed as a major terrorism event, you know, itself actually gets. And and I think, you know, all of it essentially kind of has a, a numbing effect ultimately. But this, this constant drumbeat essentially, um, in our view, at least my view, definitely, has led to this radical militarization of our society. Uh, and in that respect, you know, I, I really do think that um, – you know, what Daniel has done here is helped to kind of remind us, you know, as, as Beverly indicated, that, you know, in relative terms, this, this period that Daniel's written about was radical. I mean, literally, uh, in, in terms of the level of violence and not just the level of violence, you know, by SDS or BLA, but the violence that was perpetrated against the, the communities out of which they originated. Uh, so it, it, it's just really striking.
1: I mean, definitely any violence carried out by these guerrilla groups in terms of like fatalities pales in comparison with the violence carried out by the U.S. and Vietnam, or, you know, with funding of, you know, covert through, um, you know, funding of proxies in places like later Nicaragua, as I mentioned, and other places. Um, you know, sp- speaking speaking to, you know, Again, the, the, the theme that Faiz is bringing up and the, this politics of, of counterterrorism. I mean, they're, they're historically, since this period, the term counterterrorism operations and the politics of counterterrorism have mostly focused on the greater people coming out of or thought to have be coming out of the greater Middle East, it's Arabs and Arab Americans in this period, and it's later both as a response to the Iran hostage crisis and because of the blowback from the U.S. funding of of Islamist, Sunni, Wahhabist guerrillas and fighters in Afghanistan, the blowback of 9-11. It's after that that the focus is on Muslims as a racialized group or suspected Muslims. And the other group targeted has been leftists. Now, you know, domestic, you know, what, like white supremacist right wing groups like that carried out of the, you know, right wing militia groups that carried out the Oklahoma City bombing. When, when the government has tried to focus on going after them in the 90s, or now, right after January 6, people in the Republican Party leaders are saying, are pushing back like, no, we can't, you know, have surveillance against conservative movements, you know. Um, you know, and I think we really see after January sixth that the Republican party mostly lining up behind trump to block to block um in the Senate you know you know um, convicting him for the impeachment charges like the the, the 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 Republican party as a party of law and order to fight terrorism, you can really see the emperor's no clothes it 's a joke right but backing up to that, i want to show like i want to add another dimension in this history here of um the this framing of terrorism in the 70s um i talk in about l patrick gray he's the, he's he's the acting director of the fbi for one year after hoover's death on May may 2nd 1972 nixon appoints him he 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 had been served briefly in the justice department he's brought in because nixon wants his man heading the fbi and that creates tensions with mark felt who later becomes um deep throat and you know i talk about that more in the book um but you know he has he you know shortly after the founding of the cabinet committee to combat terrorism which is founded after the munich attacks l patrick gray makes is giving a speech to a a terrorism conference that is being held with other law enforcement at um, fbi headquarters in, in quantico and he says the terrorist is an outlaw a wild animal, a jungle killer. How the terrorists got that way is not important, he continued. We're not interested in the psychological, philosophical, sociological factors on the terrorist scene. And I say, the priority of law enforcement, Gray asserted, was not to understand terrorists and their motives, but to forcibly prevent them from killing people framed as innocents, right? Um, And and I go on to say like, this is not just an attack on so-called terrorists, it's an attack on intellectualism, you know? wouldn't it make sense for law enforcement or political leaders to want to understand the motives of people that are engaged in violence because wouldn't that be a way to come up with solutions whether they're law enforcement solutions or broader political solutions that might you know but it's clear here that talking about broader political solutions you know social democracy human rights based on peace is off the table right and i say this is an example of what lisa stepnitzi calls when she's referring to really the bush era of a politics of anti-knowledge right and 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 right this is echoing earlier concerns about communists like and i, rem- I mean i remember almost getting beat up for protesting the invasion of afghanistan after 9 11 because it's like to even question like what's what the government is doing or just to, to question like what are the motives why where are these terrorists coming from that makes you suspect so that's that that kind that politics of anti knowledge and that's that's connected with it, it can't be separated from, I'd say the history of counterterrorism. You know, and there's echoes of that in in earlier periods. You know, as Beverly is talking yeah. about um, in, in her excellent book, it talks about this, but it gets framed around specifically around terrorism in this time.
0: And I, I think, you know, Faisa, it, it would, it would we would be remiss if, if we did not, you know, kind of remind folks that this emphasis on the part of the Bureau and, and other uh, American intelligence agencies on the American and, and Arab, uh, Arab American and Muslim American community, this, this way predates 9-11. Um, this, this goes back to the 1970s. Um, the targeting of, of political uh, intellectuals like the late Doc, Dr. Edward Said of, of Columbia, um, Palestinian uh, youth groups here, student groups, you know, in this country. And, and we had a wave of this kind of thing after the first World Trade Center attack uh, mm-hmm. with this vulgar betrayal investigation that took place in Chicago uh, literally for years. Um, at Cato, we have over 35,000 pages of material on that investigation that we've managed to obtain via FOIA um but it, it really is kind of remarkable you know we're we're getting some interesting things uh from the uh uh from the social media feed right now um One individual on YouTube uh is asking whether or not we can talk about Mossad terrorism um i i think uh, i I'll, I'll just say for myself i i think it's very it's fairly clear um that the Israeli government has for a very long time. Uh, had a clear policy of utilizing uh, violence, essentially, to go after uh, uh, individuals or organizations that it believes represents a threat to the Israeli state, Uh, I think we can have a real debate about whether or not, you know, some of those actions have actually been legitimate. But does anybody have anything they want to throw out there for the good of the order on that particular topic?
3: I can just say one thing, which is, you know, one of the, the points about the terrorism designation, right? which is that it doesn't apply to state violence by definition, right? Terrorism is about non-state actors. Um, And that obviously sort of goes to some of the points that Daniel raises in his book, which is that you sort of talk about one kind of violence and wanting to combat that kind of violence, but you don't talk about state violence. I think that's a a recurring dynamic that we see uh, across across these issues.
0: We have... uh... We have another individual here who is, you know, raising this issue of uh, whether or not there's a movement towards broadening terrorism again and linking it to Black Lives Matter. Um, In the work that you all are doing in your respective fields, um, are, are are you seeing that? Are you sensing that?
3: So, I mean, I think that's something that we've seen actually before Black Lives Matter, right? Which is that, the, the sort of the expanded authorities and the, the breadth of the mandate given to the law enforcement intelligence agencies match that sort of objective criteria for deciding who should and shouldn't be targeted for investigation were basically jettisoned. So that leaves a lot of discretion um, in individual agents to decide who they're going to target. Um, and even before you know, the emergence of the BLM movement that was happening, um, and certainly in the last administration, we saw a deliberate attempt at framing um, racial justice protesters, including BLM, and then the sort of uh, the Antifa label uh, as terrorists uh, and instigators of, of, of violence. It was very, very explicit um, uh, effort to frame that. You saw uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr in specifically using those terms when talking about the racial justice protests across the country. Obviously, we saw what happened in Portland uh, and in Washington, DC with the deployment of federal agents and, and the kind of um, federalized militarized response which you know, sort of is, is more in sync with a national security threat than a protest or public safety issues. Um, but I also want to just mention one thing and pick it up on one thing that Daniel said, which is, you know, how do we now deal with right wing extremism or right wing terrorism or right wing violence, whatever you want to call it, which is that, you know, I, I think we always have to be careful um, in allowing law enforcement intelligence to target broad movements, which are political movements uh, in the name of countering terrorism. And, you know, we certainly saw how that worked when it was targeted at uh, Muslim Americans in in the last two decades. Um, But I would be very careful about expansive uses of of notions of terrorism and notions of national security and the kind of um, the broad authorities and lack of oversight that come with them and and the work at, at basically sort of tarring broad groups of people as being suspicious because of their beliefs, no matter how repugnant those beliefs may be.
0: I I think this is a place where it's probably good to remind folks that in 1968, in a landmark Supreme Court decision called Brandenburg v. Ohio, the Supreme Court made it clear that there is a difference between speech that is hateful and speech that uh, is hateful that is a direct and imminent incitement to violence. in my view, at least, this is where the FBI has its biggest problems in the modern context, um, trying to draw those distinctions. Um, and I, I just want to associate myself in full with what FISA just said. You know, I, I don't have you know anything in common with people that are members of the three percenters uh, or the Oath Keepers or any of those kinds of groups. But I will say that so long as they engage in activities in a in a way that is is consistent with the First Amendment, uh, they have a right to do so. What they don't have a right to do, what no group has a right to do, uh, is use violence to try to overthrow the lawful government of the United States. And I think that's that is part of what we have to kind of get back to is is a basic agreement societally, um, that the use of violence to try to change uh, the nature of the government, if you will, is, is something that needs to be off the table essentially at all times.
1: Yeah yeah to build on that thank you i would say um this in some ways this brings us back to this historical framing of in terrorism you know and that maybe that debate but you know to to to, to give the context of this the more contemporary era someone mentioned earlier you know the the, the, the chances of being killed by somebody that's considered like um you know a, a terrorist is very small i mean car accidents opium, opioid addictions, workplace accidents, not to mention, you know, military intervention abroad, um, you know, and all the kinds of insecurities that people have living in, an, in the new gilded age of economic inequality and climate change, you know, so this is, fo- this all this emphasis on this, on one particular kind of violence, and then a debate over who should it be targeted or not comes out of this, this era of the 70s. And I think that um, you, in talking about terrorism, h- historically, like you can't really separate the conversation from a, the, the war on terrorism of the Bush era, which the whole just, which has been a failure, you know, it hasn't prevent, prevented, it's created more violence, the history of wars on terrorism and counterterrorism, you know, has shaped the world, you could argue a lot more than a handful of of guerrillas or bombers who are going against the state, even though um, you know they're, they're certainly part of the broader conflicts. But the so so I think that, that that's where some of the dangers of using terrorism to to talk about uh, some of the insurgent, anarchists, or or clan violence before that period, you know, lies. Um, but you know, back to that question. Also, though, uh, you know in terms of political solutions there there was there the attorney general guidelines put in by levy did limit the fbi's um scope to having to before they can engage in surveillance activities and get warrant, uh, 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 the justice department to authorize a wiretap they had to show that there was evidence of violence being committed or imminent violence happening and that was rolled back with the smith guidelines partly with, like I said, you know, kind of stealthy pol- policy analysts from the right influencing um, Republican politicians and Democratic politicians, but especially coming from the right after uh, 9-11. But um, so there is a, There is the, the levy guidelines and then others have called for a congressional charter. I mean, I, I um, on the FBI, I know Defending Rights and Dissent has, you know, to have congressional oversight and accountability to the FBI. And I would agree with FISA that, you know, Kind of extending the war on terrorism to the right is not the is not good for our civil liberties or security. I mean more so we have to, i'm I'm more concerned about now that at the same time that the, the you know there's these stalls to investigating the january sixth activity there you know the Republican party is trying to now limit voting rights in places like Texas and using you know anti-mask and anti CRT, conspiracy, critical race theory, conspiracy theories to get people riled up to promote that kind of an, an agenda. And I think that so,
0: and I, I think, um, just to make sure that folks understand here, uh, FISA had to, uh, uh, leave us, uh, because of a competing commitment, uh, we thank her for her participation. We're going to go ahead and drive on here for a little while. Just to remind all of you who might be watching on either Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, uh, just hashtag us at Century of Surveillance with your questions. We're happy to take those. You know, as we go through here, um, I, I do want to, you know, offer a, a couple of, of quick observations and just kind of get get your reactions, uh, both of you, uh, you know, to it. Um, the the concern that I have right now, quite frankly. Um, about what i consider to be something of a little bit of an excess focus on january the 6th is that congress right now and i can tell you you know just on the on the basis of the interactions that i've had with with hill staff they're so seized of that particular incident that it is leading in my judgment to a failure to kind of look at a lot of these institutional organizational issues that i think are, are a really big threat daniel you've just talked about this issue of the FBI not having any kind of a legal charter, folks are probably wondering why that's the case. Well, it's the case because when uh, Ed Levy was attorney general, this was in 1976, this of course is after all of these scandals having to do with the FBI's COINTELPRO had come out, Army surveillance, uh, Navy surveillance, all these activities coming to light. But but the FBI of course was, was the big focus really kind of domestically here. And there was a push. There were actually several different bills that were introduced in that 1974 to 1977 uh, era that would have created an actual legal charter for the FBI. But but Levy got out in front of that bureaucratically, you know, by releasing those attorney general guidelines. And, And once he did that, it took the steam out, essentially, of any kind of real political effort to try to push through any legislation at that particular point in time. So we wind up getting, you know, in this era of reform, uh, in the post-Watergate era, we get the creation of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. We get the Inspector General Act of 1978. Um, we get the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to go along with it, but we don't actually get a, a legal framework, you know, for the FBI uh, to operate within. I will just offer the observation, and I'd, I'd be interested to see what you all have to think about this, that sometimes it just doesn't matter what legal framework you create. If, if a president decides that he or she wants to go outside of that legal framework, more often than not, it will happen. Uh, and we saw that, of course, um, especially you know, in the post 9-11 era, uh, when we had an entire massive surveillance program start just two days after the attacks. Uh, what became ultimately known as the Stellar Wind program, that had absolutely no real oversight whatsoever, uh, until it was in fact exposed by the New York Times in December of 2005. And, and the same, I think, applies with respect, you know, to torture. Um, you know, the Bush administration, this whole rendition, detention, and interrogation program, or RDI program, that was run by my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, Torture was clearly illegal under U.S. and international law, and yet it took place and it took place because the president wanted to do it. So, you know, my question basically to both of you is um, based on on your own studies uh, in, in this field. What what's the solution you know, to that kind of, of circumstance? How how do we how can we do more in essence? to prevent the kind of a, a recurrence of the kind of abuses that we have seen, you know, from the Nixon era, you know, on forward. I mean, is, you know, is, is there any way, essentially, is there any, any magic formula that's going to allow us to do that? I, 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 will, I will say candidly, I, I certainly don't have the answer. I'm, I'm not sure that, that I have the answer. I'm wondering if either of you might have at least some ideas.
2: Well, I could jump in on a couple of points with this, and uh, I'm not sure I'm going to have a magical answer for you either, um, but one is that I do think the partisan politics of intelligence are quite interesting and have been quite interesting and more varied than uh, a lot of people Uh, understand throughout history, Um, but certainly since the 1970s, really as a result of the church investigation, um, as a result of the exposure of particularly the targeting of left-wing groups, um, you know, illegal as well as legal surveillance of a wide variety of political groups, uh, I think we have had a uh, set of partisan affiliations in which uh, the left has been very, you know, sort of left liberals, um, libertarians certainly have been very suspicious of uh, of the security state, of federal surveillance. And one of the things that was really interesting to me in the Trump years and now in response to January 6th was to actually see at least some of this uh, in a partisan sense flip around, right? So if you looked in Uh, At the beginning of the Trump era, and you asked people what they thought of the FBI or sort of pre-Trump, you know, Democrats would have been overwhelmingly critical of the FBI, whereas Republicans would have said, you know, national security, law and order. Um, When you got into the Trump era, into the Mueller investigation, the showdown with Comey, and then I think we're seeing that extended with January 6th, suddenly it's, you know, sort of liberals and leftists that are looking to uh, institutions like the FBI to sort of save the Republic from Trump. Uh, Whereas uh, Republicans, and you can see this in public opinion polls, their opinion of the FBI, its trustworthiness, the role it ought to be playing has really plummeted. So I think that we're at a very interesting moment for these kinds of partisan politics, and I think it highlights some of what you've already suggested, which is... Uh, you know, that the big political challenge in uh, a lot of these situations, whether you're talking about 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or the present, um, is that debates about violence are intimately connected with debates about speech, debates about civil liberties, debates about where this line is between legitimate political participation and illegitimate forms of uh, political engagement, right, violence, um, and that, uh, that those need to be thought of somewhat separately from whether or not you like the group that's being targeted, whether you want them to be able to express their ideas, etc. So that, I think, uh, is one important point. I think the second, and this gets to your question of why the reforms of the 70s were as limited as they were, uh, in the case of the FBI in particular, I think we have a vision of the Hoover era um, as Hoover being a kind of rogue agent, off doing all sorts of you know terrible secret things that nobody knew about. Um, but as the record becomes clearer, um, You know, it's pretty clear that he actually told Congress about at least in one manner or another in off the record and executive briefings about COINTELPRO. uh, Certainly he was out there in a very public way. Uh, talking about the targeting of the Communist Party, right, the targeting of the new left, etc. So if people didn't know every detail of what was going on, these were not big secrets in that sense. And I think presidents as well really used and cooperated with Hoover on a wide variety of, uh, of, of, activities that we would see as being quite objectionable. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, who was very good friends with Hoover, knew a whole lot about what they were doing to Martin Luther King. Uh, In many cases, he asked for them to do it. uh, And in other cases, he simply didn't object. So uh, there is a, a kind of broader, at least during this period, I think, collusion between institutions that are supposed to be putting checks and balances on each other and I think that's one of the reasons that the reforms in the 70s ended up being really important but also limited in key ways. Um, As for the solution in this moment, you know I think it's the United States committed a long time ago to having a massive and permanent security state that operated domestically as well as in the rest of the world, much of which operates in secret. Um, And so uh, how to make that the most accountable? You know, I think uh, there are all sorts of mechanisms of transparency that we could think about, and I do think it is transparency uh, that is the most, um, most important element of you know containing containing abuses Uh, but the fact is as you suggest it's very difficult when you've committed to um you know for good reasons and, and maybe some for bad right to having a really big secretive intelligence establishment and military establishment in the way that the united states has um you know that's the big question on the table uh what's that all about what's it and so uh finding ways to tinker with that are important and really critical. Um, But that big question, I think, uh, doesn't get asked all that often anymore. A hundred years ago, it was being asked um, quite a lot. Uh, But but uh, but that decision has has been made. And I don't think that that uh, that's on the table in our own moment.
1: Mm. Daniel, that was such that was such a great response. And I think what I'd add to that, thinking about how I, you know, the book is, a, is, you know, of course I have my political ideas, right? And my political ideas in the book, you know, shape each other, but I really wrote the book as a history book and trying to kind of do a materialist analysis of power, social movements and the state in particular, different state agencies and, you know, what contingency what constituency of americans were trying to build wanted to build some and kind of u.s imperialism and the war in vietnam build a you know a social democratic society in which you know you didn't have poverty and gross economic inequality with racism and other forms of inequality and oppression in. well it was it was the left but the left you know part i I the left and the left potentially working in coalition with others, liberals and others. So I mean, I think in terms of like, you know, addressing some of the underlying problems of violence, it needs. I think that and this is where I shift to the political, my political views, I do think that mass movements of people and regular people through the labor movement or, um, you know, with also an inside-out strategy, trying to have politicians who support um, social democratic reforms, as well as, um, you know, limits to the national security state. I think that's what's necessary, but there's, and, you know, but um, how do we do that? There's not an easy answer, but I hope my book will be part of a conversation on that. And, you know, I want to also recognize, you know, Cato has its own set of politics that, in some ways there's common ground, but really go against some of that historically, you know, in terms of definitely being opposed to the social democracy. So, you know, we should at least acknowledge that there's some differences here, as well as common ground.
0: My response to that would be that those of us who consider ourselves to be um, of, of a liberty-centric mindset certainly are uh, uh, opposed to, you know, concentrations of power, you know, that can really do a lot of damage to the individual. But I, I think I, I would certainly make the argument that the concentration of power in the federal government has become hands down the greatest threat to individual liberty uh, in this country. And, and, and what we have seen in terms of, of this massive national security state that's been allowed to grow and metastasize, uh, I like your phrase collusion, Beverly, because I think that there's a great deal of truth in that in terms of the amount of bipartisan support, ultimately, that there's been for allowing this thing to grow. You know, we just think about the the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which has got to be uh, among the most abusive and most useless uh, government entities created in the last century. Um, And and I think that, you know, that, again, is where I personally believe the anti-federalist from the the post-revolution period really got it right. In a lot of ways, you know, they warned about this repeatedly, this idea of of allowing this kind of concentration of power in a security sense to take place uh, would would be inimical to the Republic. And unfortunately, I think that's where we are. Um, I think there is a way out. uh, But I think that's that's probably a conversation for another time. Daniel Chard, Beverly Gage and Faisal Patel, thank you today. Thanks. uh, Thanks to all of you who joined us today. Um, We didn't get a chance to get to every question, but this thing will be posted uh, on the web, I'm sure, within a day or two, so you can get back to it. Um, But I want to thank everybody uh, for joining us today. Uh, We hope you found it stimulating, and uh, take care.